0: gentlemen, welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well, and I hope everyone enjoyed our spring snowstorm that we had Monday evening and Tuesday morning. And maybe that was just us, but I'm not going to complain about the weather anymore. I'm sick of doing it. Really, that could be a full-time job up here. But I would just like to say that damn it, it's we're on the tail end of April. Does shoveling the driveway really have to be on my to-do list? I've got all kinds of crap that I need to be doing right now, and spending an hour outside in the cold is not on that list. It should not be on that list this time of year. But that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Before we get into today's topic, I've got another one of my little half-assed history lessons for you today. But before we jump into the topic, I need to do a little bit of uh, background info, because this deals a little bit with a group of Christians that I'd never really heard about. I don't think they're very public knowledge, uh, but it concerns a group of Christians in the, from the 1100s into the 1300s that were called the Cathars. Sometimes you hear them referred to as the Albigensians. But the Cathars, it was a group of Christians that were starting to gain some traction and draw some followers in southern France and northern Italy, and it started to see them crop up in the 1100s. This was not a very strict and regimented group of Christians. Uh, They did not have a lot of set dogma for their followers to, to practice. They didn't have a lot of rituals. So the rituals kind of varied depending on what region you were in. Basically, they were a Gnostic group. Uh, now, Gnostic just basically means that you focus more on the personal, spiritual growth within the religion than you do with the rituals and the dogma and the dictates from the church. They also were a dualistic sect. Uh, basically, they believed that the God from the New Testament was a, a very loving God And he created all things spiritual, the soul, sort of the intangible, the the afterlife. And they believed that the God from the Old Testament was an evil deity that created the physical world. Now, because they believed this, they did not go in for like worldly possessions. They were not on board with a lot of the corruption that had crept into the Vatican over the years, uh, which anytime you have that much power, it's going to attract corrupt people. And the Vatican and the Catholic Church through most of its history, has been very corrupt. Now, because they did not follow the monotheistic teachings handed down by the Vatican, and because they were sort of critical of the corruption and the materialistic nature of the Vatican, uh, the Pope was not a big fan of the Cathars. Now, for the first hundred years that the Cathars were sort of a... I don't want to say forced to be reckoned with because they weren't mil- militaristic. But as that was sort of becoming a force in these regions of France and Italy, uh, the Pope had sent many emissaries. They were trying to convert these people, try to get them to, you know, you stop doing what you're doing, follow what the Pope mandates, and we'll leave you alone. Well, that never really worked. And when uh, Pope Innocent III came to power around 1200, uh, he sort of made it his cause celeb to bring the Cathars back into the fold. Uh, he upped the pressure—now, it was still not violent at this point—but he upped the pressure on trying to get these Cathar priests to start following the Vatican's teachings more more along the lines of what they were mandating. Uh, but it came to a head, the Catholic Church sent an emissary to one of the lords in southern France— because the Vatican had started to ask the local lords to arrest these Cathar priests and anybody that was very outspokenly a follower of the Cathar religion. And this particular French lord refused to do so. Now, as the emissary was traveling back to Rome, back to the Vatican, he was attacked on the road and killed. Now, we're not sure if somebody in the employ of this French lord killed the emissary on the way back or possibly and I would almost lean toward thinking uh, that Pope Innocent had this emissary killed so that he could go on the war path. But once this emissary was killed, uh, Pope Innocent named him a martyr, and they began a military campaign against the Cathars. Now, this was in 1209, and the crusade against the Cathars, you'll also see it as the Albigen I can't say this word, Albigensian crusade, ended in 1229 uh, with the defeat of the Cathars. Now, that did not kill all of the followers. Uh, The ones that were left, they were persecuted by the medieval Inquisition, and it finally succeeded in eradicating the last of the Cathars by around sometime around 1350. Now, the only reason the Cathars are germane to the story I'm going to tell you is because of their association with the Knights Templar. Now, I'm not going to go into the Knights Templar. I feel like everybody pretty well knows the story of them. Uh, If you need a thumbnail sketch, the Knights Templar came to prominence during the Crusades uh, when Jerusalem was under Christian control. The Knights Templar traveled to the Holy Lands, and their reason for going there is they were going to set up bases in and around Jerusalem to protect the trade routes and to protect Christian pilgrims that were traveling to and from the Holy Land. Now, while they were there, they were actually their base was actually on Temple Mount, and it's speculated that while they were there, they were doing a lot of excavating of the labyrinths underneath Temple Mount. Now, when they come back to France, suddenly they were extremely wealthy, very influential. The leading theories on this is that they found a lot of treasure and a lot of holy relics while they were in the Holy Lands. And when they brought that back to France, that's how they were suddenly, this is very powerful, very well-financed group. Another theory states that one of the things that they found while they were in Jerusalem was the Holy Grail. But once they got back to France, you know they were so well-funded and so powerful that they actually set up. What we would consider the modern banking system, the Knights Templar actually developed banking systems that we still use today, and they were loaning money to local fiefdoms, kings, the Vatican was borrowing money from the Knights Templar. Now, like the Cathars, the Knights Templar fell out of favor with the Vatican and the King of France. And they also underwent their own persecution. Uh, It actually started on a Friday the 13th. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the year that this happened. Uh, But that is why we consider Friday the 13th to be bad luck. Of course, the church said that they were practicing idol worship and heresy. You know, if you torture somebody, they're going to eventually admit to whatever you want them to just to make it stop. So, So who knows? The most likely excuse for the persecution of the Templars that I have heard is that both the Vatican and the King of France were just hugely in debt to the Knights Templar, and this was a very convenient way to make those debts just kind of scurry off the page, and they didn't have to worry about them anymore. But the association with the Templars and the Cathars is that uh, once the persecution of the Templars started, obviously they did not catch all of its members. They were still little groups, little Underground cells of Knights Templars around France, around Italy, and the Cathars offered refuge to the Knights Templars. And in 1229, when the Albigensian Crusade finally put down the last of the Cathar resistance, this occurred at a fortress in France called Montségur. And it's pretty well documented. Most historians agree that there were members of the Knights Templar in that Cathar stronghold during that battle. Now, the defenders of Montsegore, when that fell, they were slaughtered to a man. In fact, they burned over 200 victims outside of the stronghold. It's actually referred to as the Field of Burning. But there's a legend that several of the Cathars and the Knights Templar managed to escape. Now, as this was a very large stronghold in one of the last places in France that it's documented that there was any number of Knights Templars, it's long been speculated that they might have had the Holy Grail at montsegur before this siege happened. I'm not sure how much I believe the stories of people escaping this this fortress with a treasure. If you look up montsegur it is on top of a ridge with very steep walls, and the, the ridge itself is extremely steep. It would be, I mean, it's an excellent place to put a castle. Because it would, you know, if I'm just looking at that picture, it's like, I don't want to walk up that hill, much less fight my way up it. But it's not a large fortress. Like I say, very steep sides all the way around. Uh, It just sounds like it's a good story to say somebody escaped. But if you look at the reality of it, you know, somebody coming down that hill, you're completely exposed and you're trying to get through siege lines carrying bags of treasure. That just doesn't, I mean, it's a good story. It's a good legend. It just does not sound very plausible to me. But that should get everybody caught up on the backstory before we jump into the story of Otto Ron. Now, if you want to learn more about the Knights Templar, just turn on the History Channel. I guarantee you there is a show talking about them on right this second. It's easy to find out stuff. Uh, The Cathars, like I say, they're very loosely important in this story. It's basically just the fact that we have documented proof that there were Knights Templar at one of their strongholds. That brought them into this story in the first place, but let's move on to the meat of this story. What I'm wanting to talk to you about today is a man named Otto Rahn. Otto Ron was born in Michaelstadt, Germany, in 1904, and as a boy, he was very into medieval culture. The region of Germany that he was born in had a lot of medieval history, a lot of medieval legends. Uh, he was fascinated by the poem about Parzival, uh, the Knight of the Round Table that actually found the Holy Grail in the Arthurian legends, and the legend of the Holy Grail sort of became an obsession with a young Otto Rahn. Now, he attended university in Gießen, where he earned a degree in philology, which is a study of languages and how they, the different languages interconnect. But while he was in college, he learned about a German archaeologist named Heinrich Schliemann. Now Heinrich Schliemann is the gentleman that is credited with finding the lost city of Troy. Schliemann said that a big part of the reason he was able to locate the site of the city of Troy was that he had went back through all the stories like the the Iliad and the Odyssey and some other writings about the, the battles of Troy. And he took clues from what these authors were writing in these fictional stories To paint a picture of where the city of troy might be now this really struck a chord with otto ron now remember he had been obsessed with the epic poem of parzival growing up and he went back and he started studying that with a little bit of a different eye and he became convinced that there were clues in the poem about parzival that pointed to where the final resting place of the holy grail may be now once he was out of college otto traveled around southern france a little bit into italy Um, And he was going on archaeological expeditions. He was going to all these old castles and these old Christian strongholds. And most of these strongholds and castles, they would dig labyrinths underneath them, uh, both to to hide people or not people to hide treasure uh, to give places where they could go and have meetings in secret. And with all the wars going on in Europe all the time, it was probably just a good place to hide when whatever army that week was coming through, putting people to the sword, you could go underground and maybe escape getting beheaded. Uh, but he spent a lot of time traveling around, uh, and he became convinced that the uh, Cathar stronghold at Montsagor was definitely where the Holy Grail, if not if it's not there now, it was definitely there at one point. Uh, he spent a lot of time doing excavations and explorations in Montségor And of course, unfortunately, he never found the Holy Grail, although he did uncover some tunnels and rooms that nobody had ever found before. So he did make some archaeological discoveries, just not the one he was there to, to find. Uh, but when he returned to Germany, uh, he wrote and published his first book. It was called Crusade Against the Grail. Now, this was just a chronicle of his travels going to these different Christian strongholds and the things that he'd found, and of course it focused a lot on the Cathars and mont it was not a very good commercial success, uh, but it did find one particular fan, and you could argue whether this was a blessing or a curse that this one individual discovered this book and fell in love with Otto Rahn, but Heimrich Himmler was a huge fan of Otto Rahn and his writings. Now, if you're not aware, Heinrich Himmler and a lot of the Nazi party leaders actually were very, very deeply into mysticism. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll probably do a show on that because that's an interesting story. Just the nutty crap that these, well, I mean, they were doing a lot of nutty crap, but but just the, I mean, just the seances and all these weird pagan rituals that they believed were going to bring them power and and all this other garbage, which, I don't know, it's kind of hard to argue with. They almost took over the world, and Germany is not a big country. But Heinrich Himmler was a huge fan of Otto Rahm. Now, Heinrich Himmler invited Otto Rahm to come to his castle, and he made him an offer. Uh, He offered him a position in the SS— and told him that the Nazi party would fund all of his research, all of his archaeological trips. In return, when he found the grail, he was to bring it to Heinrich Himmler, and he was to write three more books concerning the occult and the Holy Grail. Otto Rahm agreed to this, and he gets a lot of crap from a lot of the articles I saw. They were talking about him making a deal with the devil, but you've got to understand what it was like in Germany at that time. I mean, the Nazi party had a stranglehold on every facet of that country's economy. And if Otto Rahm wanted to continue his research, he had to have the blessings of the Nazi party or he wasn't going to be allowed to do anything. And, you know, and there are a lot of businessmen that that did this. Ferdinand Porsche worked very closely with Adolf Hitler in designing the Beetle. Nobody gives him any crap about that. You know, if you're an automaker in Germany in the 30s, you have to do what the Nazi Party says, or you don't get to make automobiles. Hugo Boss, the famous fashion designer, he designed the SS uniforms. Again, he he was not a Nazi, but you, in that situation, you do what you got to do to get to get along to survive. And I really don't blame Otto Rahm for doing that. In fact, you know, just after he made this agreement with Himmler, he was talking to a friend. And the friend in an interview years after his death was talking about, you know, he asked him, "You, you, those people are monsters. How can you get in bed with them? And he said, Otto Rahm just looked at him and said, what was I supposed to do? Tell him no. During this period, people that went against the Nazi party had a tendency to disappear. And I think, number one, well, I think above all else, he wanted to continue searching for the Holy Grail. But I think Otto Rahm was intelligent enough to know that if he pissed Heimer Kimmler off, that he was going to wind up in a grave outside of town very, very shortly. So Otto Rahm joined the SS, um, and he was not, first of all, he was not a member of the Nazi party. Uh, and He was certainly not what you would consider SS material. Otto Rahm is described as being very slight of build, uh, very quiet, unassuming person. He was openly gay. Uh, he had very liberal political leanings, Uh, he was just kind of the antithesis of what you think of as the sinister, imposing SS officer. Uh, But because Himmler just loved him so much, everybody kind of turned a blind eye to that aspect of his life. Uh, But he was allowed to continue his research. Uh, He continued searching for the Holy Grail. Now, in addition to that, he was also tasked with uh, researching the genealogy of Himmler's family. Uh, he was sent to Iceland with an SS expedition to study the North mythologies, uh, Norse mythologies, I'm sorry. During this time, he did manage to write one of the three books that he promised Himmler to publish. Uh, It's called Lucifer's Court. Uh, It came out in 1936. In Lucifer's Court, he puts forth his theory that the fallen angel Lucifer is not an evil figure, uh, but the Christian church had misappropriated and used him as sort of a demonic enemy in their religious teachings. Uh, Again, much like the Crusade Against the Grail, this was not a commercial success Uh, Heimrich Himmler again, just loved this book. He even ordered 100 copies of a special binding with a very high-end leather, and he gave these out to the members of the Nazi party, one of which he actually presented to Adolf Hitler. Unfortunately, at this point in Otto Rahm's life, when he should have been at sort of the pinnacle of his academic success, he was You know, he had all the money he needed to go do whatever he wanted as far as archaeological digs. He was sort of a celebrity among the mysticism devotees in the Nazi party. But the realities of him being in the SS and dealing with what that type of life meant uh, started to, to wear on him. And he began to drink rather heavily in a letter to a friend around this time he was quoted as saying, it's impossible for a tolerant and generous person to stay for long in this country, which used to be my wonderful homeland. Now, I mentioned earlier that Otto Rahm was openly gay, and alcoholics are not really known for their decision-making or their discretion, and around 1937, Otto Rahm was involved in a tryst that was public enough that Himmler had to address it. Now, he had turned a blind eye to all this stuff going into this situation because he was such a fan. Uh, in fact, he was so convinced that Otto Rahm was going to deliver the Holy Grail to him that he had two rooms in his house renovated to serve as a display room and sort of a shrine to the Holy Grail. So he was absolutely convinced that Rom was going to find the Holy Grail and bring it to him. Uh, but he had to address this. Now, he ordered Rom to serve guard duty for a couple of weeks and considered the matter closed. But about a year later in 1937, Rom was involved in another tryst. this time with a high-ranking member of the Luftwaffe, and Heinrich Himmler was furious about it. Uh, again, he assigned Rahm to serve guard duty, uh, this time at the Dachau concentration camp. Uh, he was there for a few months. I think he was sentenced there for like three months, or not sentenced, ordered to serve there. And the things that he saw at Dachau just emotionally broke him. 1938, Rahm resigned from the SS, and he did not really go into hiding, uh, but he did leave Germany. He settled briefly in the town of Seoul in the Austrian Alps, but in March of 1939, he went missing, and a couple of weeks later, his body was found on a mountainside outside of the town, frozen to death. Now, was this... Did the SS catch up to him, and this was a murder, and they just left his body there? Was this a suicide? Did he simply go for a hike and get caught in a winter storm? Who knows? Uh, But there were a few rumors that he had faked his death to escape the SS, but there's really no actual evidence of that. It's just sort of the crazy stuff that pops up when you're dealing with anything with the Grail legend, Uh, but there's no actual evidence that he faked his death. Apparently, he just simply died on that mountain now whether he was killed or again it was an accident or suicide we're just never going to know at this point uh, but Otto rom died in March of 1939 now you may be wondering why I'm talking about this very obscure archaeologist that now he didn't make a few discoveries through his life but uh, nothing major and he published a couple of books that were fair to middle and successful uh, really his only real claim to fame is he caught the attention of Heimer Kimmler, which, again, is that a cursing or a blessing or a curse? You, that's up to up to each individual to decide because it doesn't seem like him turning his eye your way would be a good thing no matter what. But the reason I'm talking about Otto Rahm today is he actually, in sort of a roundabout way, has had a cultural impact that goes beyond any other archaeologist in the history. I mean, people that have made great discoveries, you know, King Tut's tomb, stuff like that. And the reason I'm saying that is because Otto Rahm and his life was a major inspiration for the Indiana Jones character. Now, obviously, you know, a small, bookish, homosexual man is not what we think of when we think of swashbuckling archaeologists, and of course, they couldn't make a movie about somebody working with the Nazis, so it was changed to an American that was racing against the Nazis. But in a roundabout way, Otto Rahm has had a cultural impact that any other archaeologist through history could only dream of, and it would probably be small comfort to him personally after all the things he witnessed and had to go through working so closely with the SS, but it's not a bad legacy to leave behind. All right, before we wrap this up, I just want to uh, say I do have an individual in Germany that downloads a lot of my shows, and to that person, if you listen to this show, I apologize for my pronunciations of some of these words. I'm sure I butchered every single one of them, Uh, but thank you for listening, by the way. All right, guys, that is about all I've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope you found that story interesting. If you did enjoy the show, please leave me a like and a comment. And as always, I would certainly appreciate a subscription to the show. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can do so at southerner at gmail.com, or you can leave a message on the Facebook page for the Fresh Rose and Southerner. All right, guys, I hope your week is going well. Thank you for listening this long, and I will talk to you again very soon. Thank you very much.